Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and navigating the manifold paths. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, pretty good. Just uh, plugging away at my project and making some progress, finally. Yeah, I guess I'll dive right in. So that weird roller mouse that we talked about last week, I'm starting to get used to that and not sure what kind of impact it's having other than I haven't had to stop working because I've been in too much pain to continue. So that's a good sign. That that sounds like a version of success. Yeah. It's pretty low bar. Well, but, yeah. Yeah. Pretty if, low if roller any bar. Of the other, oh, God. Uh, if any of the other mice could reach that bar, I'd consider it a low bar. But proceed. Sorry. Yeah. So, like, it, you know, some of my criticisms for it still apply. Like, it's just too big. It's just got too big of a footprint on the desk. But maybe someday I can find one that is much smaller. But, uh, yeah, I've been plugging away at stuff. I had a lot of consulting to do last week and made quite a bit of progress on retrospective timelines. So I'll dive right into that. Um, we talked last week about kind of the the different approaches for laying out the event edit screen and how I kind of presented two options and you like the second one better. And then you'd suggested removing the ongoing event type and just making the event types you know, single date or date range and then adding a, an additional option for ongoing. So I implemented that as kind of a, well, take this Dave feature. And then uh, that, that, that's looking pretty good. I, I still can't decide if I like the toggle above or below the event date. Like I've tried it in both and I just, right now it's above. Hmm. But uh can't figure out what I like better. So I'll probably get some feedback on that. Did you give serious consideration to beside? That's not really. I'm joking. That was. was, (laughs) You considered underneath, Mm -hmm. behind. Yeah, I tried to. I I tried to do it actually in the section part of the section, not as a standalone row. But the SwiftUI toggle isn't customizable enough to be able to change styles because I wanted like a real small toggle in the corner above the date field, but that's not really doable. I could do my own implementation or something like that, but and I, you know, I may still do that because it's really just, I would need just two images that I can toggle between and then mm-hmm. the animation state. So I may still do that, but uh, that layout's looking pretty good. There's still stuff that needs to be added to it. Um, still can't actually change a timeline for an event, which I don't know how many people are going to need to do that, but I think it's good to be able to move events around if you want to you know, consolidate several timelines into one. So I need a timeline picker there. And I still need to deal with the notes field issue where the SwiftUI doesn't have a SwiftUI equivalent of a large text area to type in. So I still need to figure out a workaround for that either make make the notes field that's there now into a navigation link that just navigates to 
a UI view controller with a big text area on it, and then navigating back saves it into that text field. Or I saw kind of a potential hacky workaround on in a blog article last week that I might try to implement as well. Um, so yeah, the event stuff is coming along. I still, I'm kind of skipping ahead, but on the events data entry screen, I'm still kind of going back and forth about images, whether I want people to be able to attach images to an event. And I feel like this is something that people are going to immediately ask for. Mm -hmm. And I, I get into the same circular argument with myself every time. So I'm interested to see what you have to say. I don't want images personally. <laughs> like I'm right. not going to use them very often if they were there. Um, there are a handful of things I was looking through my, my data. And like, there's a, a couple of things that I might want to use an image for, but most of it I don't. But I recognize that people would have different emphasis on images in their lives than I do. So, you know, I thought about, okay, I could add a single image field to an event. So each image, each event can have one image. And that's not terribly hard to implement. If I put it in the events table, I'm going to slow down the event loading and kind of lose some of the performance I have with some of the more advanced reports. But if I make it a one-to-one -one or a one-to-many relationship, I can kind of do some lazy loading with the images and core data is pretty smart about how it loads that stuff. Um, and it just, it's a problem space that's thoroughly solved and I can just kind of look at what other people have done to make it performant. So I thought about, you know, adding one image to the event, well, it doesn't belong in the event, so I'm gonna make a table for it. Well, now that I have a table for it, do I need a one-to-one -one or do I need a one-to-many? People are gonna ask for one-to-many. Before you know it, my app becomes a giant collection of images, and I'm just not sure that I want that. And particularly, I think there are better tools for people who want that type of approach. So if you want to track the type of data that I'm referring to in retrospective timelines, and it's all image-based, then go look at day one, which is a, a journaling application that's very, you know, it's it's a text editor, but it's also very visual and has all kinds of attachment mechanisms where you can attach multiple images and it will pull out the EXIF data for it and geotag your notes for it and stuff like that. Um, I'm just not sure that I want to deal with any of that in my app. And I guess ideally what I want is what I'll never have, which is just a way to drop a pointer to an image in the library, which I, I wish Apple had like a permanent API like that. Of like, just let me pick an image from the image picker, but don't put it in my database. Just give me that link that I can go to anytime. Hmm. There isn't the ability to do that? I don't I, think I, so. I, I'm not speaking from the perspective of like, I think I've heard of one. It just strikes me as the kind of thing that they might have done. I, I don't think there's anything persistent. There are some stuff, I haven't spent much time with the image APIs, but there are some stuff to like reload, like get an image from the library, edit it in place, and then send it back and replace the same image instead of adding a new duplicate image. But I don't think, I think that's like on device stuff where each image is kind of has like a local ID. I don't think there's like mm -hmm. a permanent 
you know, internal sharing URL mm -hmm. that you could use. I could be wrong, but anyway, what's your thought on images in retrospective timelines? Um, I'm probably not a huge image person either, but in general, my advice would be don't bother now. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there are, always going to be really really cool features that you can think of that you can add to this app yeah and you can't add them all before release and i can't necessarily unadd them like if i added it now nobody used it the few people that did use it would make it difficult to remove yeah um i think you uh do no images, maybe do a blog post about why you're not doing images now and welcome input from your users so they can find it if they run a search for, you know, retrospective timelines, images. Mm -hmm. They'll find that and go, oh, okay, let me just click here and send Joe a message that goes, hey, I'd really like images. And then you can have a conversation with those users. But... Like when I released version one of FM Perception, there were only a couple thousand missing features. <laughs> only. And, and all of them were completely valid and really, really useful to certain people. Like they were so useful to certain people, I knew ahead of time that I was going to have to add them. But you want the software to be out there so you can start getting feedback. Mm-hmm. The only ones that have to be across the line are the ones that are so missing that they're going to stop people from even looking at your app. Yeah. And even then, I like the the approach of opinionated design that mm -hmm. you make a decision. And for this app, the way you want it to be, it doesn't need to have images. And somebody may come to you later and go, well, here's why I want to use images. And you're going to find that argument so compelling that you're going to go, yes, now I understand exactly what I want to do with images here because I really understand the use case, not just from my own perspective, but from other people's. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I put that in your version two list or your someday maybe list and keep going. That's me. Okay. Yeah. I think I've already got a list like that with possible future features like, uh, adding some kind of tagging or categories to events as well. Not both of those, one or the other. Um, probably more of a tag type system where you could tag an event with multiple tags and then kind of use those tags to build queries on. But that's also, that's a, that's that and the images are both types of features that could be added next to the existing app. Like without modifying the schema too much, just adding a new table here and adding the relationship on the event side, it would be pretty easy to do from that perspective. So back on yeah. events, the event list view is still, it's not that I haven't made progress on it, it's that I, I keep doing everything else except that. because I still don't really know what I want to do. I've decided to put the visual feature that we talked about a couple weeks ago on the back burner for now and just focus on getting a really good list view with some basic advanced features 
So I guess basic advanced features? Advanced features. <laughs> In, initial um, advanced features. Yeah. So basically, I'm kind of leaning towards more of a a timeline in the sense of a Twitter timeline where you're like, I, this is where I'm getting more opinionated. I got rid of the sort toggle. So you are always sort of descending. I thought it was kind of confusing to sort ascending and then the direction and the flow of the app changes. So I think I'm just going to keep it in descending order. I also got rid of the ongoing events from the list views. They just don't show up at all. And I might make a little popover button or something if you're on a timeline and you want to see does the timeline have any ongoing records that you can look at them. So like if you if you have an event with an ongoing end date, the start date record still shows up on that list. It will even say, you know, start date dash ongoing, but I'm not having a separate row for the ongoing records. It just didn't, like in practice, when I started putting data in, it just always looked bad to have a blob of ongoing stuff at the same part in the list. And particularly, there's nothing to stop a user from putting dates in the future. And at which point that breaks my previous sorting hack where we were sorting by ongoing status, a Boolean status first, and then sorting by date. So the ongoing events would show up before, like the current date ongoing events would show up before future events, which didn't make sense. And I played around with that and it looked even worse when I, I fixed that sorting, but then I had future events, a big blob of today, and then the timeline history. So just as soon as I got rid of the ongoing events and all I did was add a, a predicate to filter them out, the whole list looked a lot better and kind of solves that future problem as well. So on the, excuse me, on the ongoing dates, you have the start date, but not mm -hmm. the end date. Yeah. Okay, cool. Got it. So if an event has a date range and its ending date is marked as ongoing, the ongoing record doesn't get a row in the list view mm -hmm. independently. And what I think what I'm going to do at the very top level of the app, I've got these four categories. I'm calling them reports for lack of a better term, but they're basically just queries. So on this day, perspective, favorites, and all events. I think I might just add an item there for ongoing. So you could just look at all of your timelines and just filter into the ones that are ongoing, but still mm -hmm. sort that list by the start dates of those. So it's going to give you an idea right. of how long you've been working on various things. Yeah, so you can just quickly get a list of all the things that were started but haven't been marked as finished. So you can mm -hmm. see if any of those need dates or just look at them as a timeline. Sounds great. Yep, yep. So, and then having those kind of separately tagged in the schema opens up the app, you know, the option of like separate notifications for those. Like, hey, this on this thing has been ongoing for 30 days or a year, that type of stuff. All this type of stuff I'm not doing right away. So the, the rest of the event list view, I still need to work on quite a bit of it to make it, right now they're, they're basically just, you know, a little image on the side, a title, a subtitle and a little bit of, of of a footnote for the duration past or time past. But I want to expand that into kind of a more compelling card. Basically more white space text format a little bit better. Um, make it look more of a structured thing. And then I'd also like to 
be able to tap on a row and have it expand into kind of a full detail view where it shows any related content. So if it's the end date for a date range, show the data for the start date record as well. Um, if there's notes attached to the event, show the notes, that type of stuff. So the, the kind of stuff that you would see on the detail view that I got rid of and replaced with a detail slash edit view. And the reason I'm going with that approach is because I solved one of the bigger navigation problems last week. I spent quite a bit of time last week just focusing on navigation and trying to get the app to move around a certain way. And one of the two navigation issues that I've been having was the uh, iPad portrait view where the back button just wouldn't show up for master detail view. And I put the entire app in stack view, but it looked really bad on the iPad when everything was full screen. So I, I spent some time with, you know, trying to add some maximum width frames to the list and didn't really like any of those. I even spent a couple of hours re-implementing everything from the ground up as scroll views because they're they're far more customizable than the list object in Swift UI. And I came up with a more visually compelling set of features there, but there was so much more work to get it working. It just felt like taking out a technical mortgage. No thanks. <laughs> I've, I've used the phrase technical debt many times, but a technical mortgage is just funny. <laughs> you know, I decided that the list view thing has to work. So I, I kind of started Googling again, trying to solve, find something for this. And I ended up finding my own Stack Overflow post from months ago. <clears throat> and since the last time I looked at it, somebody posted a comment to another thread and in that other thread, somebody else posted a comment to yet another thread. So we're, we're three comment links away. But there's this hacky workaround where if you put the list, or if you put the navigation back into the master detail mode, which is the default behavior for how Swift UI navigation views work, the, the issue comes back on the iPad where the, the button is missing. And I, there's no way to solve that. So when you go in portrait mode, you just you don't see the list at all unless you swipe over. There's no way to make it persist. But this hacky workaround is basically adding padding to a padding modifier to your navigation view itself. Basically adds a, an invisible frame around the entire navigation view. And then the navigation list never dismisses. It's always there. Which at first I'm like, I don't know if I like that. But then I used it for a while. I'm like, I definitely like that. The timelines are always there. <laughs> it's it totally works. It's I've got one pixel or one point of padding on the left and right of the navigation view, and you can't really tell. Mm -hmm. At least I can't really tell. Maybe John Gruber can tell. But uh, this may break in the future, and I'll have to pay the consequence. But it's better than anything else that I've found. And I kind of like always having the timelines there. I've tried it on all the iPad simulators that are shipping with Xcode. And it looks good on all of those, except there's no iPad mini simulator. And I think that's because the iPad mini and the regular iPad 
are the same dimensions, even though there's a smaller screen. I think they mm -hmm. rendered things the same, but I can't remember if that's true. And I seriously thought about just buying an iPad mini just to make sure, but I don't really want to do that. I've got an old mini. Yeah, but it probably won't run iOS 13. No, probably not. Yeah, my friend has one too. He's like, you can you can try mine. I'm like, yeah, I don't think it'll run iOS 13. I think only iPad mini 4s and 5s can. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I really like about this workaround. Um... It's a minimal quantity of code to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Right? It's not, you didn't write 50 or 100 lines of code to make this special behavior occur. Yeah. Um, it may be tough if they close that loophole without fixing the other part. You may end up having to find another hack. But what I hate is writing a ton of code to get around a tiny problem. And exactly. then having to back that out or now maintain all of that code through Apple's revisions. Um, a tiny little adjustment to make that work, really not bad. To a certain degree, if you really wanted to be crazy, you could actually make that conditional. Mm -hmm. Set like a Boolean at the top of the document to just turn off your hack. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just one line of code as a modifier on mm -hmm. the outside of the navigation view. So yeah, it's really easy to get rid of if I need to. And I can also check for like, are we running on an iPad? Then add this modifier, else don't. So things like that. It doesn't need to be there on the phone. So yeah, the the other navigation issue, which isn't strictly related to navigation, but it's, the, it's happening in the navigation view is those navigation bar button, whatever they're called, um, in UI kit, they were called bar button items or something like that. In Swift UI, they're called something. And I still have the issue where those work as intended 90% of the time until you open a modal and then close the modal and they break again. And I spent some time this morning uh, running through the view hierarchy and exploding that out so you could actually see. I, there's a couple of GIFs I put on Twitter. You can see what it looks like in its proper state and then what it looks like in its broken state after closing a modal. And the touch target is just moving around all over the place in that altered state. And as soon as you like swipe down or pull down on the that view, it fixes itself. It's just when you're closing a modal, something is supposed to be happening that's not finishing and putting everything back where it's supposed to go. And if you actually look, it, it's hard to describe in a podcast, but if you open a modal, and then peek behind it, kind of pull down, you can see where the button is and where it's hiding behind the modal is where that touch target gets left behind when you dismiss it. So it's like, it's a weird side effect of like, a button's not really a button. A button is a whole bunch of things all working together to be a button. <laughs> and some of the button, it's like, it's like its soul is being left behind and his body is going back to where it's <laughs> supposed to go. <laughs> you you may be over-anthropomorphizing your iPad, Joe. The, the soul of the button is being ripped out of it when you're closing a motor. <laughs> See, there's another episode title. Okay. Soul of the button. <laughs> so yeah, I have... 
I don't have a workaround for that. I have posted feedback about that. I even opened a request for a, a technical, uh, whatever you call that, TSI, technical support. Incident? Initiation incident. Um, haven't heard back from that yet. They asked for more. They asked for a bunch of sample code. I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Let me talk to somebody. Um, so we'll see if they actually honor that request. So the the not so hacky but major workaround, if I really need to, like I don't know if this is a show-stopping bug or not. To me, it's egregious and terrible because I see it. Other people may not ever even notice it. Like you may close a modal and you don't tap a navigation bar button as your next item. You do something else. But to me, I know it and I just, I can't stop fixating on it. Um, so if I make myself fix this before launch, I, I don't know if this will work or not. I need to spend some time in a sample project seeing if this is doable. But I could, in theory, make my entire navigation layer in the UI kit layer. So I can make a project that uses a storyboard and a bunch of segues and connects all the view controllers that I need to, but every one of those view controllers has a Swift UI hosting container inside it. So all the content would be coming from Swift UI, but the navigation would be coming from the stuff that's working in UI kit. But as soon as I thought of that, I thought, I better make sure this is actually working in UI kit. So that's step one. <laughs> make a sample project later on. Like, does this is this bug happening in UI kit as well? Because I know there's been all kinds of issues in iOS 13 with navigation. So I'm wondering if this is a Swift UI issue at all, or if this is actually a UI kit problem. So yeah, it's icky stuff. The the worst part though is testing this on the simulator, it never happens on the simulator. It always works perfectly, <laughs> which just infuriates me. Like, it, it seems like maybe they fixed it in the version of iOS that's shipping with the simulator, but I just know that's not true. I just know in my heart. So last uh, area of my update is some changes to timelines. Um, I got the archiving working and I was trying to figure out where to put archiving. I, you know, I mentioned last week I just, I put it in the settings view, and I just didn't really like that because I felt like I had to explain that's where the archive was when you archive something for the first time. So I put it back on the main screen as a separate section below the timeline list, but I made that conditional that there has to be something in the archive for that to show up. So when you first launch the app, I can load a couple of sample timelines for you but you won't see an archive. And the first time you archive something, you'll see that list. It's not really a list, it's just a single row. You'll see that show up and then that navigates to a view controller or see now I'm talking about view controllers again. <laughs> that navigates to a list of archive timelines and you just tap a row to unarchive it. And this is one area where I got to use class functions, which I don't use very often, but they're particularly handy, especially with core data stuff. So I need to get a count of everything. Like, give me a count of all the timelines. I can just write a class function to do that. Or give me a count of timelines that are marked as archive or are not marked as archive. 
And th these functions just have a miniature fetch request in them with the predicate and the sort order just all built into one thing. And they're super snappy because they're just returning a piece of metadata. They're not actually returning the individual rows. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty handy way of doing that. And then, uh, so I kind of wrote some class functions to do those calculations, but also to handle the archiving. Actually, that's more of an instance function. So like when you're marking something as archive, um, I needed to query how many, I needed to query the maximum value in the sort order in the destination that's going. So if it's, if it's not archived and you're archiving it, what's the greatest index in the sort order field in that group and add one to that and vice versa. So when you're unarchiving stuff. Um, and the only reason I'm doing that is because I, I want to be able to avoid collisions. So I'm never really reordering the entire collection of stuff unless you're actually manually reordering everything yourself. So it's possible that you could archive something that has a sort order of three and then at some point, a new timeline takes over a sort order of three, and then you unarchive it, you'd have two items with the number three, and then it, and they'd have to sort alphabetically after that. But I didn't want to deal with that, so well, I'm still sorting with it alphabetically, but I wanted to, when you unarchive stuff, always just put it at the end of, of the list. And when you archive stuff, always put it at the end of that list. So it's just the same behavior on both sides. Um, it may not be as elegant as persisting that original sort order, but it's more predictable, especially for if something has been archived for a year, your previous sort order for it doesn't necessarily make any sense. So, and then a uh, couple changes to buttons and, you know, added some better toolbar buttons to timeline editing and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, I'm nearing completion of what I set out to do to build this thing. So kind of where I thought I would be a month ago or a month and a half ago, I was kind of going back over that version 1.0 table of contents and I'm picking stuff off of that pretty quickly. In fact, I think I made more progress yesterday and today than I thought possible. So I'm, I'm really kind of full steam ahead on at this point in trying to get something out the door as soon as possible. So, fingers crossed I'm able to do that. What have you been working on? Well, I uh, talked last week about how I was having some server hardware failures, mm. which are fun. Well, server parts started arriving this week. I'm going in and fixing some things, and that's always fun. Um, the battery for the server rack uninterruptible power supply is heavy <laughs> heavy so it takes like a second person to come over and help you maneuver this thing into the rack oh wow which is always fun to schedule <clears throat> um and then also got distracted by some process automation stuff for my other business so image conversion and automated throwing text on images and this is the kind of stuff that i used to do on a daily basis a few years ago but now i get to do it three or four times a year and so kind of unpacking that from cold storage in your brain 
yeah. little obnoxious. You know, something that I do every week is easy to remember how to do. It just becomes instinctive. Um, and like some of these scripts haven't been run in six months or longer. And what we keep bumping into is somehow during that time, like when I, when I had an office and we had 10 or 12 machines, I kept everybody on the same operating system version hmm. so that, you know, the, the same Photoshop version, stuff like that. So that everything just stayed fairly consistent. And now Photoshop won't really let you do that. And, um, Operating systems are getting bumped up and things like that. And that's always been one of the biggest problems with Apple script is operating system versions or the versions of the software that you're communicating with as those change, things just break. Um, yeah, I've got a, a chunk of this process uses Acorn and Acorn really did not want to run, um, on my latest and greatest operating system. Well, previous latest and greatest, because I'm not running uh, the new one, uh, Catalina. I'm still on mm -hmm. Mojave. So, yeah. So, grab a new version of Acorn. Acorn uses the uh, a lot of the OS level image editing functions. So, as the OS changes, so do the underpinnings from Acorn, and so things break all over the place. It's not to say I don't like Acorn. Acorn's fantastic and it's really, really fast for image editing. And it automates pretty well. But I, I miss having a completely stable setup. I used to hang on to all my old computers because they were great for kind of freezing a, a development and automation system at a particular version. So you mm -hmm. just remove it from the network and it doesn't get any more updates. And now I've got this machine that is my automation machine as of two years ago. Well, I got my new laptop and went, I don't need this old one. I'll sell it. <laughs> and then <laughs> I kind of needed that old machine back. Nice. So hop in and play with that. Loads of fun there. Um, I also... Da -da! have my first failing key on my laptop. Yeah, you mentioned that last week. Yeah, it's I was suspecting it last week. Now I've played with it a little more. And yeah, my left command key is really, really inconsistent. It's not always dead. If you press down in the very center of the key very hard, it works about 80% of the time. But if you're trying to close a bunch of windows and you're just going command W, command W, command W, you know, one in four or five just types a W on whatever the current window is. Not what I'm looking for. So it looks like I'm going to have an opportunity to find out how good Apple's service plan is on a laptop that's out of warranty. Mm -hmm. um, my recollection yeah. is they extended that stuff. Yeah, they've got a repair program for all of those laptops. Yeah. Like for four years from purchase date or something. Well, sounds like I need to jump in on that. Um, Visual Studio has been working a little better for me for acknowledging the fact that it's working poorly. <laughs> so I quit Visual Studio two to four times an hour. 
and relaunch it, which only takes a couple of seconds. And it does a good job of remembering what, what tabs were open and what tab it was on. So everything kind of pops back to the same spot. Um, what you need the, is a way for your computer to tell when you're not looking at it and it can just quit and relaunch it for you. <laughs> See, I don't need you telling me that kind of thing, Joe, because it's the kind of thing that I'll do. Because one of the things that I do when I'm doing this is I'm using a, both Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code. So when I'm working on the Antler code, I am in Visual Studio Code. When I'm working on mm -hmm. the C-sharp code, I'm in Visual Studio. Um, option one is, theoretically, I can do everything I want to do with Visual Studio in Visual Studio Code. And that may solve the problem. It'll move to command line building the application mm -hmm. and figuring out what the command line things are to run the unit tests and stuff like that. But... Yeah maybe i've also there's a third party c sharp editor called rider from yeah, a company I saw called jetbrains um it's just reached the point where i've heard it mentioned for like the fourth time mm -hmm. which is around about when my brain starts going maybe this is something i should look at um, generally comes really highly rated. It's cross-platform. Maybe I'll download a demo and start poking around with it, see if it solves some of those problems. Yeah, um, it was it was heavily promoted in the Unity store last time I was in the Unity store. So I think it was still relatively new there, but it seemed like a good approach of having not just a an editor that I'll work on Mac and Windows, but a consistent experience. You know, it's kind of, it's not necessarily an Electron style app where it's like, you know, an abstracted web view. It could be, I don't know, mm. but it looks much more like this looks the same on Mac and Windows aside from like the window Chrome. Right. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's just in general, all the reviews and things that I've caught are people going, no, this is great. And if you're writing a lot of C-sharp code, you should totally migrate to this. Hmm. Not, well, if you're in these certain special situations, you should try it out. It was, no, really, use it. Yeah, I tried to write C-sharp in Visual Studio Code for a while. A couple weeks, actually. I was still doing Unity stuff. And it's just, it would kind of, I think this is more Unity related, but it would kind of lose its connection to whatever build scripts it was supposed to do. So a change, like I would make a change in code and then build the app, but it wouldn't have reflected that change. It was just kind of this weird broken interface. Hmm. Yeah, so... Maybe this week I'll check out Ryder and have something to say next week about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I got into the bracket notation calc functions. Mm. Um, which is the probably the, the single most complicated part of this parser. And so naturally I left it for last. Um, bracket uh, notation calculation functions. That's our our first T-shirt line. 
so Bureau and look for project update. <laughs> okay. So the first thing to do was really make sure that I fully understood the scope of the problem and it turned out that I'd missed a couple. Um, there are, as far as I can tell, five FileMaker functions that have this optional bracket notation. Uh, substitute, evaluate, let, while, and JSON set element. Mm -hmm. I, I knew about... about evaluate. Yeah. I knew about substitute, let, and while. I've never used that function for evaluate, but... No particular reason why not. And uh, JSON set element, I haven't used much. So I wasn't really aware of that one. So I also did some digging and it looks as though uh, plugins don't have access to use their own bracket notation. Good. Yes. Because if they did, I was going to need an entirely different way of tackling this problem. I wasn't going to be able to make just five little special sets of code to handle these. I was going to have to somehow genericize the whole thing. Which, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, might still work. <laughs> Darn it. Don't do it. Joe. <laughs> that one wasn't my fault. <laughs> That's totally your fault. I blame you. Because <laughs> the thing is, I only need to make sure that I'm using the correct number of parameters in the bracket notation if I'm doing, um, if I'm validating the calculations. But I'm, as I've had to continually remind myself, I'm not validating the calculations. I still need a little bit more understanding for let and while because they can actually assign variables. Mm, yeah. Okay. So anyway, um, and then I bumped into huge nasty problems as I kind of expected, but I didn't expect it to be this bad. So, Here's the problem. Um, when you set up the parser rules in Antler, the produced code builds a little API for you. So, for example, in the standard substitute function, or really any normal function, but in the standard notation for substitute, it's substitute open paren text you want to search through, semicolon thing you want to search for, semicolon, thing to replace it with, close paren. And so I can basically express that as function name, three parameters. And when you do it that way, Antler will create a set of functions where you can say, okay, you've got this thing that's a function call. What is the function name? And there's just a, a, a method called function name open close paren and you can get that and then those params because you're actually just saying it's three parameters i didn't give them any special designation it's just parameter 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 it makes a set of methods first where you can say parameter 
and then hand it an index and it will give you back that particular parameter. And then there's, it also makes a parameter list function that will give you an array, actually a, a C-sharp list of all of those parameters, just pointers to each individual chunk. And that's great. The problem is when I start saying, well, but substitute could also be shaped like this with the square bracket notation, which could have effectively any number of parameters. All of a sudden, I can't figure out what the heck it's doing with that API. Like, in mm -hmm. theory, I should just be able to hand it not just index 0, 1, and 2, but index 3, 4, 5, and 6. That should work, right? Yeah, not so much. Suddenly, it starts acting like it, it didn't build a list function and the arrays aren't working right. And so I start adding these branching paths in the parser and my unit code test breaks all over the place, even the basic stuff. So I figured out a solution around it, which is actually effectively define it as two different parsers. So there's one for the standard notation and one for the alternate notation. And then I can hand a particular chunk of code off to either of them and it will do what it needs to do. And that works. And then because of the way that's written, I get a good clean API to both of those. Problem is that in some cases, I don't want to write it that way. It adds weird complexity and I'm concerned that it could get confused about which one it wants. Now, maybe that concern is unfounded and I just need to do a little bit more testing to give myself confidence that it's not going to get confused about what's going on. Um, but that theoretically works. <clears throat> so I, I've got a path forward and I can just say, okay, I've got an answer. Let me go ahead. But this is one of those spots where I'm pretty sure that what's happening under the hood is something that I need to understand. Yeah. You know, getting this sense that just slogging forward is not the right path and I need to spend some R&D time figuring out what's going on. The really cool part is as part of digging into this stuff, I started looking at the code that Antler produces because Antler isn't a black box. I hand it a description of the parser that I want it to write and then it actually produces visible human readable source code that I can use to figure out what it is, what it is expecting. Most of the work that I've done so far in, in exploring this stuff has just been in code completion. Like I start typing the name of the function that I want and it's just there. And so I notice when the parser is doing something weird, when the thing that I'm expecting to be there suddenly isn't or between one version and the next, it disappears. Because I altered the antler code, it reproduced the source code, and now the function that I used to call isn't there anymore. Um, so what I really want to do is just um, make myself a branch and break the hell out of my code. <laughs> just, just do terrible things see if i can find exactly where that line is 
and then see what happened. Because it doesn't make sense to me that basically their entire parsing API that they published to me disappears. There's got to be something that replaces it. It's just working in some way that I can't understand. It is possible that it's just disappearing. And that what I'm doing now actually is the right way to approach the problem. That there are two different forms of this function, and that's all there is to it. So now spending some time digging into source code. Source code that I didn't write. Source code that is computationally generated. Which makes me very, very nervous because most of the time when something produces that, you're not going to have any luck reading it. It's so weirdly obscure that you can't do anything. But my sense is from the little bit of poking that I've done that they actually made this stuff human readable. That they didn't just output inscrutable garbage that only makes sense to the computer. It looks like they actually have this thing outputting something clean. It... it... I've seen other things that build automated code and it, you know, you get function names like a, a two Mm. R because it was never intended to be looked at by a human being. This has an API that's being published specifically for me to access. So even if I can't understand the code that's inside these methods, I should be able to understand effectively the headers. I know know more than zero FileMaker developers who name their variables A, B, C. (laughs) Yeah. Particularly in let statements. Yeah. I've mostly converted to kind of a C style thing where the only time I use single letter variable names is for iterators. And even then... I hardly ever do it. Yeah. Even iterators, I want like index number because it doesn't cost me anything. It's a it's a uh, a a compiled language. The compiler yeah. can turn it back into X. <laughs> I want iteration number as my variable name. I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty descriptive with stuff. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I can commit. Is that a version control joke? I can commit and just make a new branch and just go in there and have a little bit of fun. Do some exploration, break some stuff. It's just that I've I've been running back and forth through this code for days and I found a path out. And part of me is concerned that if I just start screwing with that code, that I won't necessarily be able to break it in the same way it used to be broken. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really understand why it was broken before, so I'm not confident in my ability to make it do it again. So eh, I'm going to have to play with it, but I think I need to understand what's going on here. I'll end up with substitute, evaluate, and JSON set element. And then all I'll have left is let and while, which are the most complicated of the ones that I need to do because Mm -hmm. of the way those assignment operators work. Yeah, those are basically tiny little calculation 
calculations. Yeah, they're they're functions themselves. They're methods that do a bunch of work. Subroutines in kind of old school parlance. Do we still talk about subroutines? I don't know that I've seen that phrasing pop up anytime recently. Not really, no. Subroutine. Subroutine. No. Yeah, who knows? So you mentioned version control. You mentioned breaking stuff. And I am still breaking stuff with version control. Yeah? Yeah. So there was, I think this was last week or maybe the week before. I... I still haven't really wrapped my head around branching. You and I had a little lesson on it and I thought I knew how to do it. And I, I can branch just fine. I can't merge for anything. And uh, so I haven't okay. really been using it. So <laughs> No, no, no. Branching would be less helpful if you can't merge. Yeah. And it's still useful. I, I cannot non-destructively merge. Oh. I end up destroying something when I do a merge. Okay. So... So I haven't been using branching and merging. What I've been doing instead is like, I'm not going to start a commit for a block of work unless I'm sure I'm going to add it to the project. And that's worked out pretty well, except there was a time recently where I made a change. I'm going to go down this path and I'm sure I'm going to keep going down this path. But a day later, I'm like, nope, this was a dead end. And I need to go back to commits. And just rolling back the commit. Apparently, I don't know what I'm doing with source tree because I rolled back the commit, but then I the project kept behind the server and there was no way for me to reconcile these two mm. of like, basically I had to reincorporate the changes that I didn't want back into the project, commit those, and then somehow overwrite all the changes again. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I did the only thing that made sense to me which was before any of that, I copied the entire project directory somewhere else, mm. went ahead and did everything that I knew was going to be messed up. It was messed up. And then I overwrote it with the other stuff, which you would think that version control would read that as an entire deletion, an entire addition, but it did still know what was what when I copied that uh -huh. back in. So I, I, there's this weird dead end in my project right now where it's just like this branch was forced out to the side when I tried to roll back and then it was never merged in and then there's these there's several commit messages with profanity in them and then <laughs> things are back to normal it's I try really hard not to curse in my commit messages but sometimes it's hard yeah, there's actually a, a Twitter bot called developer swearing that just uh, monitors any of the open source GitHub repos <laughs> for swear words and just retweets them. 